me worshiping with you this morning. One of the things that we talk about a lot here at church is that our prayer is that these 85 minutes that we're worshiping together would have the potential to be the most 85 spiritually significant moments of this week. And so we all come in from different places every single week, but there's weeks like this last week with the shooting in Uvalde that remind us that there is so much pain and brokenness out there in the world. And so as we come together as the body of Christ, we don't ever want to turn a blind eye to those among us who are hurting or those uh, in our country who are hurting. And so what we're going to do this morning is practice this ancient Christian prayer of lament. Okay, so lament is something that we're not very familiar with as Americans because we like to be upbeat and happy all the time. But lament is when we go to God in prayer and we recognize that in this broken world, there is pain and suffering. But Jesus has promised to one day roll back all the effects of sin and brokenness and return and set up his kingdom and glory. And so when we lament, we turn to God in prayer. We complain about the effects of sin and brokenness in the world. We ask that God would do something with that pain. And then we trust that he will work all of this for his good and his glory or our good and his glory. And so those four steps, turn, complain, ask, trust. That's what we're going to do now. So I'm going to pray a prayer of lament, and then together we are going to respond by reciting a verse from Psalm 34 together. So will you pray with me, and then we will all recite the verse together. Holy God, we come to you this morning. We have seen hard things this week. A cloud of grief hangs over us. It seems like evil is everywhere. We pray, Father, save us from ourselves. Save us from the forces of evil in this world. We do not have the power to undo what has already been done, so grant us the grace to persevere and courage to change things that can be changed. Teach us how to live as your children as we await the day when you will come again. Amen. Let's pray together. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Amen. All right, now we are going to stand for the reading of God's word. Please stand if you are, are able and willing. And today our reading comes from Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we have also, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is God's word. It's true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, David. What's well, great to see you all, especially all you little ones. If you are fifth grade or under, can you like raise your hand and say good morning to me so I know you're here? Good. That's awful quiet. I think I'm expecting a lot more noise out of you guys as the service goes on. Can you say good morning if you're fifth grade and under? Yeah. 
All right. I don't know what they're teaching you guys back in kids because you're not very respectful when an adult asks you to do something. We'll do it louder next time when I try to ask them. But it's so great to have you little ones in here with us. So, And for you parents that are wondering why your kids are sitting at your table, uh, there is absolutely no pressure to try to keep them quiet. Uh, it's, it wouldn't be a Missio Day event if there wasn't a noisy kid somewhere or another at our church here. And so the reason why this is happening is because our vision to be at a place like David said, our mission to encounter, experience, and engage Jesus, a lot of that ministry happens with kids that are fifth grade and under. God has blessed us with a church of about 30 to 40% kids fifth grade and under. And so one of our prayers is that we would be a church that stewards that responsibility well, that we care for and disciple these young ones well. And part of the way that we do that is by caring for our volunteers who teach in the kids' classrooms and making sure that they don't get burnout and overwhelmed and have to serve and miss the service more than once a month. And so we're a little short on volunteers, and so with it being the holiday weekend, we thought we would invite the little ones in here. So uh, if you are not currently serving and miss your kids, it might be something to pray about whether God is calling you to help disciple these young ones uh, in their classrooms. We think that the, the age each specific curriculum is really important because uh, as cute as all you guys are, my jokes will not make any sense to you today. You'll probably have a lot more fun if you're back with the kids' classroom next week uh, instead. So that's the plan. Um, As as we get going this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15 again. We're continuing our series through the book of Acts, if you want to turn there. But as we get going, one of the questions I want to ask us, and I want you to meditate on this thoughtfully, uh, what is it that you need? What, what do you need? Imagine that someone came up and gave you a blank check and they said, hey, whatever you need, I got it taken care of. So, so, so what would the answer to that be? What do you need? And, and try to answer that question, not on a surface level, not with tangible things, but a deep heart soul level. What are the things that you need? I think sometimes uh, we live in such an affluent society where we have all of our physical needs met so easily that we forget that we have soul needs and heart needs as well. I think sometimes our life can feel so hard and painful that the hardship in our life feels like that overwhelms everything else. And the question of what do you need is easily drowned out by, I just need this pain to stop. I need this hardship in my life to end. One of the things... Uh, Kelly is the athletic one in our family, and she took me for a run a little while ago. Uh, and she's like, I'm trying to, on this jog, she's like, hey, let's have a really deep conversation. So what, what are the top three things you need? And, and I, because of the pain of running, because I'm not in good shape, I'm like, I need water, I need air, and probably the second coming of Christ or something to just put me out of my misery here. You know, something, somehow this has to end. Uh, other times I think in our wealthy society, we can get sidetracked by all the perks and benefits of being an American and we forget that we have other needs and we think that all we need is more comfort. So you guys may have seen those t-shirts that you can buy on Amazon. We have a slide here of uh, the um, all I need is coffee and Jesus or, or all I need is Jesus and tacos. At least the taco guy has better theology, right? It's Jesus and then tacos where the coffee guy's like, I need coffee first. And then that's the definition of idolatry in case you're wondering. But this idea of like, what do you need is actually a very biblical concept. I I remember the first time I read and really pondered the story in Mark chapter 10, when Jesus meets this blind beggar, Bartimaeus, and and this blind beggar, he he comes up to him and Jesus asks him, it says, Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Imagine that being the words of Jesus for you. What do you need me to do for you? What is it that you need this morning? And I think a lot of times when we talk about our needs and the things that are weighing heavy on us, Jesus is not the place that we go to look because we have this cultural stereotype or this idea that religion and the church and Jesus, they are there to make demands and to be harsh and demanding and command things of us. They are not there to alleviate burdens. Jesus is there to tell us to do more, to be more, to try harder. He's not there to take our our loads or to lighten our burdens. But what we see through our study of the scriptures is that that is not Christianity. 
Okay, the truth of Christianity is the gospel is the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And grace is the undeserved favor of Jesus. If you have to do something to earn God's love, then what you're working for is not the gospel of Jesus. It's not Christianity as the Bible teaches it. So, so if you're here this morning and you have this nagging feeling that God wants you to be more or to do more, or to try harder, or to work further, or all those kinds of things. What we're going to see this morning is those deep feelings of I am not enough come from the world. They don't come from Jesus. And so when we study this passage this morning, my prayer is that we would see this beauty of grace, the beauty of God's gospel that says it is not saved because of anything you can do, but you are saved, you are restored to relationship with God because of what Jesus has done in your place. So let's pray, and then we'll study this passage together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word for us. I thank you that when we come to these pages, that they're not, it's not just ink on a page, but it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it, it contains the words of life because it contains the words of you. So I pray that you would open our hearts this morning, that as we study this passage, this important passage, that we would see the beauty of your gospel and we would, we would run to no one else because you alone can save us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So Acts chapter 15 is where we're at. This is in very, a lot of ways, the absolute center and hinge of the book. So where we've been the previous 20 some weeks as we got to this place is Peter was the main character uh, and, the, and the most of the action took place in Jerusalem. But from this point on in the hinge, Peter will no longer show up after today in the rest of the book of Acts. And instead, Paul moves front and center. And instead of Jerusalem being the centerpiece of the action, Antioch is where the mission movement of the church goes out. And then Rome is on the horizon. And, and the reason, more importantly, besides just the characters that are involved, the reason this passage is so central to the book of Acts is it is in this place that we most clearly see the beauty of this gospel that we're talking about. Okay, the gospel is this word that means good news. And in these verses, we see a summary of what is and isn't the gospel in the clearest possible way in the book of Acts. Let's read Acts 15 beginning in verse 1. Uh, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders uh, um, uh, about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and by the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so the, the reason this passage is so important for understanding the gospel is because the, the most uh, ardent enemy of the gospel, the most likely opponent to grace, rears its head here for the first time. Okay, and that opponent of grace, that, that enemy of the gospel, is this idea of salvation by Jesus plus works. It's the idea of if you work a little harder, you can be saved. That's what these people are teaching. And so, so they have a really interesting way of going about it, right? They're telling everyone, if you grew up a Gentile, you have to be circumcised, which I think that's probably a very good anti-church growth strategy. I can't imagine being like, hey, please fill out this welcome card. And if you have not been circumcised yet, please uh, follow our, our elder here. We're going to perform a little minor surgery on you before you come back next week. Uh, last week we talked about consumerism and how consumerism lowers the bar for the uh, church. It makes, it makes Christianity
understanding too low of a bar. I think this might raise the bar a little too high before anesthesia was invented. But the reason this is so important is because the, the key for this is not the act of circumcision. It's, it's relevance in the Old Testament. It's the relevance for the, the kingdom of God and the covenant of God's people. Because in the Old Testament, there was this circumcision was the sign that you were a member of the covenant. And so what these people are trying to do is say, if you really want to be the people of God, if you really want to believe that Jesus is for you, yeah, it's nice that he died for you on the cross, but you also need to work really hard on your own and try to earn God's salvation by working hard. Okay, this is the idea of instead of being salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, this is this idea of salvation by Jesus plus a little bit of hard work on your part. Okay, and what we see in this is that, that some things, some doctrines in Christianity are so important that it is worth fighting over. Okay, we talk a lot here about open hand and closed hand issues. So open hand issues are things that Christians can disagree on, like how should you be baptized? What is the role of men and women in the church? Uh, Does the gift of tongues still exist? Those kinds of things. Those doctrines are worth talking about, but they're never worth fighting about. Unity in the body of Christ is too important. On the other hand, there's some things that we need to hold in a closed hand and say, this is worth not only fighting with other believers about, but this is worth dying for. It's saying if you take the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith and you add works to that, you have corrupted and perverted the gospel so it is no gospel at all. If you say Jesus won't be for you unless you do these works of the law in addition to coming to him, that is worth fighting over. And that's what we see Paul and Barnabas doing. They're saying this is such a big deal. They're willing to fight them in Antioch and they're willing to take this several hundred mile journey to Jerusalem to the council there, to the church elders and the apostles and see if they can figure out a solution to what's happening here. Okay, now it's easy for us to dismiss this and be like, okay, this is not a struggle. I I have never told someone, if you want to come to our church, first get circumcised and then you can come back next week, okay? Not a struggle that we have. But as American Christians, as modern people, we do struggle with this idea of salvation by works all the time. Okay, do you ever have that nagging feeling in your heart that says, I'm not sure God is for me? If I just do a little more, if I was just, if I was a little more, if I could be a little more, then somehow I think that those feelings of insignificance would go away and I could truly believe that Jesus is for me and God loves me. Okay, if you have that feeling, what you are doing is you are embracing the doctrine of salvation by works. You're thinking that because you haven't done enough, maybe God is not for you. And maybe you're here and you're not a believer and you're thinking, this is why I'm done with religion, right? This is why I don't like the church. There's all these rules and all those things and I don't want to have to deal with any of these debates, okay? If that's the case, if you're here in that position, I'm willing to bet, this is just a gamble, that the reason you think you're going to be good in the afterlife is probably that you are a good person, right? That's what most of us tell ourselves is I am a good person and because of that, God will let me into heaven when I die. But the, the reason we're able to convince ourselves that we are good people is because we know so many people that are worse than us. And so we stack ourselves up against them and we're like, compared to that guy, I'm doing really well. Okay, but the problem is we never stop to evaluate it the other way. Okay, if your salvation is based off of you being a good person, what about all the people out there that are better than you? What about the people that are more generous than you, more kind than you, more loving than you, more selfless with their time than you, all those things? What about them? And so if your salvation is based off of you being a good person, where do you draw the line? Did you, did you make it or not? How do you know if your works, your good works, were good enough to allow you into heaven? And, and the same is true if you, you're here and you're a believer. If you think God wants you to do more before he will fully love you, how will you know that you've done enough? 
If that's what the tension is, that's what this debate is that they're having here in Acts chapter 15, is if Christ's sacrifice was not enough, then how do you know you will ever be enough? If the sacrifice of Jesus was not enough, how do you know that you will ever be enough? That's the question they're trying to answer. Let's look at verse 6 and keep going. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembled fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related through signs and wonders what God had done through them among the Gentiles. Okay, so this is like a courtroom scene. There's already been a debate and an argument going on. Now, Peter, one of the the early uh, key leaders, pillars of the church in the early church, he stands up and he makes his opinion known. He uses four different arguments. He talks about how God has worked through his experience. He points to the history, the failed history of Israel. He talks about the importance of theology and doctrine. And then he uses Paul and Barnabas' testimony and their examples as further evidence. And what he starts off with saying, his first thing is his own experience, is that God had used Peter several chapters earlier, about 10 years earlier in church history. Peter was the one who evangelized the first Gentiles. The first first non-Jewish people to receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized was through the evangelism of Peter. And Peter's saying, if God used me to save them, then why are we thinking that God wouldn't save Gentiles, that he would have to make them Jewish? The second argument he uses is the history of Israel. And he says that this yoke of the law, this idea of if you do enough good things, then you will be a member of the covenant. That yoke was so heavy that the people of Israel were never able to bear that. He said, we, neither we nor our fathers were able to bear the weight of this law that you're trying to put on the Gentiles. He says, and instead of that, we know, this is where theology comes in, we know that them and us, we will all be saved by grace. It's not because we have worked really hard. Salvation is found by grace, the unmerited favor of God instead. And then and Paul and Barnabas share all the testimonies of how God has worked through their ministries as well as, as further evidence of what's happening here. And, and the thing we want to zero in on this is this idea of the yoke of the law was so heavy that neither their forefathers nor them were able to bear it. And, and that's the thing about any doctrine, any religion, anything that is not the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. If you are hoping that your salvation comes from you doing something, that yoke will be so heavy, it will always crush you. The idea of I will do something for Jesus is always going to feel like a heavy weight. You'll never be able to do it. And and the same is true for the gods of this world. It's not just religion, uh, the idea of legalism that exists in the church. It exists in the world too. Some people look at their physical fitness and they say, the reason I know I'm enough is because I'm physically fit. but, but, But how thin is thin enough? How fit is fit enough? If, if your God is your physical body, you will always feel this heavy yoke that is driving you into the ground. Same, same with wealth, right? A lot, of people, a lot of people build their life and their salvation based off of if I just have enough money and success, then I will know that I matter. Okay, but how much wealth is enough? There's always someone out there who's richer than you are. If your life is built around that work, you will never be enough. So the weight of that law, the weight of this saying, if you just do a little more for Jesus, then you will be saved. That weight crushes us into the ground. And in amidst that legalism and that false religion, that false gospel, we hear the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where he says, come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Apart from the, the weight and the yoke of legalism that crushes us is replaced by the light and easy yoke of Jesus. He says, come to me, cast all your burdens upon me, and I will carry them for you because I love you. Okay, that's why when we talk about our church vision and our values and our, our priorities, one of them is being, we want to be a church that is gospel-centered. We, we want the, the fact of the good news of the glory of Jesus Christ to be central to all that we do. And if the gospel is that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we need that as an anchor in our hearts because our hearts are so prone to wander, like that hymn says. We're so prone to think that we need to work a little harder in order to earn God's love. And so, so if you're here this morning and Christianity feels hard and heavy, if life feels difficult and unbearable, it's because you are yoked up with something other than Jesus. You're yoked up with something that says, if you just do a little more or could be a little more, then God would love you. And that is not the gospel that uh, Peter and Paul are preaching. So, so as we go to this next section, there's this, there's this debate that's out there. Like, what happens if the true gospel doesn't win in this council? How, what would happen to the early church? And the reason I had David read that passage from Galatians chapter 2 is that's a really important argument that had happened in this, uh, in this city of Antioch where Peter uh, was in the church of Antioch. Uh, some people came from James. They said they represented James. And they said, unless someone was circumcised, Jewish people couldn't eat with them. So there's this huge division, and Paul takes this bold stand, and he says, I opposed Peter, or, or Peter's other name is Cephas. He's like, I opposed, I opposed Cephas to his face, saying, if you are relying on, making Gentiles rely on works of the law, you're putting a weight that's too heavy that we haven't been able to bear. So that, that was an argument that had happened in the church. And so just for so some background, there's kind of two positions of, of when that chapter in Galatians took place. Either it took place in the same incident that we're reading about in Acts 15. Either those are the same stories or that event took place several years prior. Okay, but regardless of when that event took place, look what happens next. Because James, the person who sent those people to Antioch to say, you need to do these works, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved, James is the next one to speak. And so if you are a legalist, if you're a Pharisee, you're super excited because you're like, all right, our boy James is going to talk down. He's going to get our back. But instead, listen to what James says. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or, or Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, this is James speaking again, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So, so this is the, the mic drop moment of the debate. James, the person who they would have thought would align with the legalists, the Pharisees, instead says, you know what? I'm believing the same gospel that Peter is preaching, which is the same gospel that Paul and Barnabas are preaching. Is that, that you are not saved by works of the law, but you are saved only by the grace of Jesus. It's the unmerited favor, the fact that he died in our place for our sin on the cross. And here's the thing that I love to highlight about this, is this is evidence that we all can change and grow. 
right? No matter how long ago this other story from Galatians was, James's position and Peter's position had both changed. They, instead of aligning more with legalism and works of the law, they now aligned more with grace and the true gospel. Okay? And that gives us all hope that no matter what our struggles are, no matter how often we can fall into that trap of legalism, there is hope that we can return to this gospel of grace. Um, there, there's an old a pastor from a previous generation named Howard Hendricks who had a really legalistic childhood. His, his sister was told she was going to hell because she put fingernail polish on one time. That's the kind of legalistic background he grew from. But listen to what he said. He said, I repudiated legalism intellectually and theologically in 1946, but in 1982, I am still wrestling with it emotionally. That is such a profound thought. He, he had repudiated legalism 38 years prior, but 38 years later, he still wrestles with that part of his heart that thinks, I just need to work a little harder and then God will love me. And, and here's the takeaway from that. Legalism always takes its toll on our souls. If you grew up in a background that said you are not enough unless you do these things for God, a lot of times those false gospels will get worked into our souls so deeply that it takes years and years of preaching ourselves the gospel and hearing the gospel of grace preached over us before we can undo the effects of that legalistic background. And again, just as a reminder, if you are coming here and you feel like you are not enough or you haven't done enough for God to love you, the message of the cross is Jesus has already done it all. If you put your trust in him, that is all that is needed in order to feel the favor of Jesus upon you. So what, what James does is he, he um, uh, uses this, this prophecy from the book of Amos. He says that the, uh, the idea of saving Gentiles is, is not God's plan B, but it was God's plan A the whole time. And then from there, what he ends with is James makes his recommendation. And this is probably one of the most confusing parts of this passage because he says, no, 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 we shouldn't put this yoke of legalism and the idea of circumcision on the Gentiles. That one rule, we shouldn't do that. Instead, we should tell them to do these four things. He's like abstain from sexual immorality, food that's strangled, food sacrificed to idols, all that. But what he's really doing is saying the doctrine of salvation by grace is true, but in light of that grace, our love for our fellow believers and our love for those who are not yet Christians should compel us to behave differently. Okay, so the, the three things that he talks about with food and meat, that's, he's saying, uh, if you were around a Jewish person, they would be offended if you ate meat that had blood in it still or had been sacrificed to an angle, an, an, a, an idol. And so because of that, out of love for that person, you need to abstain from eating that meat. And at the same time, he says, we need to abstain from sexual immorality. So the, the, the city of Antioch was full of temple prostitutes and all kinds of, of uh, immorality and, and sexual promiscuity. And so what James is doing is he's carving this middle line by saying, don't do something to offend the legalists, but also don't align with the world. Okay, we, we cannot be so like the world that they don't see how our behavior is different, but we shouldn't purposefully flaunt our freedom and hurt the brothers and sisters in Christ that are still struggling with this idea of legalism. And so, so with that, I think the last thing I want to point out here with his verses is when James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And I love what he's doing here. He's saying we need to make the gospel as accessible as possible and not put barriers in non-Christians' way to come to Jesus. And I think this is something as the American church that we have struggled with over the years is we put these artificial boundaries and say, well, if you want to come to church or if you want to be a good person or a good Christian, you have to do all these things. Okay, so like, well, that's the reason why we don't uh, pass an offering plate here. Because if you're here and you're not a believer, we don't want you to think that you have to give money to the church in order for God to love you. 
Okay, that's another reason why we don't care about a dress code. Uh, one of our friends, our boys on their baseball team, they brought their friend to church. It's the first time this kid, he's like fourth or fifth grade. He'd never been to church before. And his parents, before he went, they made him say, well, you got to put on your nice clothes. Are right? you going to church? You got to put on a collared shirt. And this kid, all he wants to do is wear sweatpants and a t-shirt. So in his mind, there's this barrier to coming to Jesus because who in the world in their right mind wants to wear a collared shirt on a Sunday morning when they could be in sweatpants and a t-shirt, right? Okay, so some of those old stigmas still hang on and people think, if I'm going to really come to Jesus, I need to clean myself up first, okay? And we should not put any barriers in front of people, okay? There is nothing that, that, uh, that the church should require of us in order to come to Jesus because Jesus offers his, his grace with no strings attached. Okay, so with that, the gospel is at stake here. Uh, there's this debate raging. Peter and James both have spoken in favor of this idea of grace. So what is the council going to decide? Let's look at verse 22 and see what their ruling is. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Here's their ruling. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are in the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you have Abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. There's there's, there's the church ruling as it aligns with what the gospel that Paul and Barnabas have been preaching. And don't miss the miracle that takes place here in verse 22. Notice that. It says it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church. There there was unanimity among them. A unanimous vote. They all agreed with this. I don't know if you've ever been to a a church meeting where there's a vote, but getting every Christian in a room to agree on something is truly an act of God. It's like like seeing someone change their political position based off of Facebook or something like that. It just, it doesn't happen. But what they're saying here is that that, uh, by agreeing on this doctrine of grace, they send Paul and Barnabas and these two other dudes to Antioch and say, here's a letter, an official ruling from the church saying, this is what we actually believe. And I think the important thing here is they came to this conclusion through reasoned debate and theological arguments. Okay, they used their brains and their minds and came to a position of unity. And out of that position of unity, they were willing to say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Okay, they trusted that God was guiding their discussion and that God was enlightening their minds so that they could rationally come to the correct decision for what the good of the church would be. And so what this ends up being is this is called the Council of Jerusalem. And this is the first church council in the history of Christianity. And throughout church history, every several hundred years, there ended up being these other councils where rulers and leaders in the church would get together and they would decide important things like write the Nicene Creed or uh, the, the Council of Constantinople or the Council of Ephesus. All these important things happened because the Holy Spirit was guiding people in their doctrine. And so, so this is a reminder to us, good theology should produce unity. Good theology should not produce division. If we are centered on the gospel, we should find the same unity that the early church did. But I think the more important thing to focus in on here, to zero in on here, is verse 24. When it says that we heard that some people went and troubled you, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. 
And so what, what James is doing with this letter is he's saying there's two different groups. There's our official representatives who, who represent and speak for authentic Christianity. And there's those people who went up to Galatia before this, up to Antioch before this. And they are unofficial representatives. They do not speak for authentic Christianity. And he's saying that the true representatives have this letter. Those who troubled you and said you needed to be circumcised, those are not official representatives of the church. And here's why that's important. The most, everyone in America, for the most part, the vast majority of Americans have heard of Jesus. Okay, the, the, most people have been to church at some point. Everyone has this idea of Christianity. But most of our friends and neighbors, and maybe some of us who are here this morning, have rejected Christianity, not rejecting the authentic thing based off of the official representatives, but have rejected a caricature or a false gospel that has been presented to them. Okay, how many people's opinions of the church has been shaped by someone holding a sign at a protest that says God hates homosexuals? Okay, that is a false representative that does not represent authentic Christianity and our beliefs on God's love should not be shaped by a sign like that. Or how many people have opinions on Christianity has been shaped by politics and how we present ourselves in the public sphere. I I saw a book on Amazon. This this is an actual book. It's called uh, Donald Trump, The Son of Man. And what this person does, it says that Jesus was the son of God, but he made a prophecy that Donald Trump was actually the son of man. And all these prophecies in the New Testament are pointing to Trump. I don't know any Christian who voted for Trump who would believe that. That's, that's completely absurd. But the idea that that is out there, and people will, will look at something like that, and they will reject Christianity based off of a false representation. And so our job as believers is to make sure when we present ourselves, when we present the gospel, are we presenting the gospel of grace that he of salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Or are we presenting a false doctrine of legalism that says, you know, you really should work a little harder and then Jesus might love you? Which, which theology are we presenting to people? And how do you know which one you're abiding in? How, how do you know if you are a legalist or someone who has bought into the doctrine of grace? Let's look how this passage ends. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas were with them, prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And here's how you know if you are abiding in the doctrine of grace or the doctrines of grace plus works. Where is your joy? Where does your joy come from and how much anxiety are you living in? So if you look at the beginning of this, as Paul and Barnabas were traveling to Jerusalem, they would share the gospel with the church and the product was joy. So they would rejoice when they heard this. Now here when we get to the very end of this passage, when they hear that they don't need to do works of the law to be saved, the fruit of it in, in the early church is there was rejoicing. Okay, so so what, what Luke, when he wrote this passage, is doing is he's, he bookended this passage with joy. He's saying that where there is the true gospel of grace, there is joy. And here's, and here's what joy is. Joy is not a prosperity or some fluffy happiness because things are going your way. Okay, here's the definition of joy that I, I love. Uh, joy is an awareness of God's glory that produces a triumphant confidence that transcends your circumstances. Okay, joy is an awareness of God's glory that produces a triumphant confidence bigger than your circumstances. You know that if God is for me because he sent Jesus to die for me, it doesn't matter what pain I'm experiencing now. Okay, if you can say, if God is for me because Jesus died for me, it doesn't matter what good things I'm experiencing now. My joy is rooted in the fact that our God is a God of grace. 
And so if, so if you're here and your life feels hard and heavy, if you feel like Jesus is demanding you to do more and to be more, again, my promise to you is what you are embracing is not Christianity. And what if you are here carrying something, carrying a work of the law that Jesus never asked you to carry? Okay, think about the consequences of that. Uh, John Stott was a, a pastor and a theologian in England who died a few years ago. But he tells this story of a, of a French soldier in World War I. His name was Louis Delcourt. This is a true story. And, and he w- went home on leave one time during World War I. And he decided he just couldn't do it anymore. He didn't want to go back to the trenches. He couldn't take it anymore. He'd had enough. So he convinced his mom to hide him in her attic upstairs. And he went AWOL. And so his mom hid him in the attic and brought him food and water for 21 years hiding in the attic until she died. And then when he didn't ran out of food and water, he came down out of the attic. He went to the police station to turn himself in for being AWOL, only to find out that every single AWOL soldier had been pardoned as soon as the war ended 18 years earlier. And that is what the yoke of legalism does to us, is it puts something on your shoulders and it makes you carry a weight that you were never intended to carry. It makes us hide in the attic when we've been pardoned decades earlier. Okay, and so if you're here and you feel like your life is hard and heavy and the, the idea of working harder to earn God's love is driving you into the ground, instead of that yoke, replace that with the yoke of Jesus that says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage and the way that it so beautifully shows us grace and, and how we all can rely on the cross for our salvation. It's not by works that we do, We can never earn your love no matter how many good things we do or how hard we try. That weight is not something we were meant to carry because you already carried the load for us. Lord, when you carried the cross to Calvary, that is the weight of our sin and that's the thing that has been paid for in your death in our place. So I pray that you would help us to believe that more deeply. If if we're here and we have never trusted you, may we put our faith in you. May we turn, exchange our works and our trying to be a good person for your grace uh, that we get through faith. Lord, as we turn to our discussion tables now, may you uh, enliven our souls. May we encourage one another. May we point each other to the beauty found at the cross. That's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's, uh, if you're new here, it's great to be worshiping with you. The reason that we sit around tables is so that after we study a passage like this, we can turn to our tables and we can process what God is showing us through this passage. So, so here's some questions to start our discussion. Um, at, same as always, there is no pressure to share anything. If you're not comfortable, this is an invitation to speak. There's no responsibility uh, to share anything beyond what you're comfortable. So first of all, just that opening question, what do you need? Okay, if Jesus stood before you and asked, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer? And again, try to answer as deeply and as, as a heart level as possible. Second question is, if you are honest, what are you tempted to think you need to do in order for Jesus to truly be for you? Where, where's the idea of Jesus plus some good works come in? And then how is grace so much better than that? And then lastly, this is a family question. If your kids are sitting with you, this might be a good place to start. Uh, Just what is grace? How would you define grace in a way that your kids could understand it? And what is faith? What does it mean to put your faith in Jesus? And how does Jesus save us? Just just spend some time gospeling your children at the table. Uh, And if you're an adult, maybe that's a good place to start also. Just remind yourself of those beautiful doctrines. So we'll do that for about uh, eight minutes, and then we'll come back together for worship. We're going to turn now to our time of communion. Hope your discussion is going well, but we've got to keep moving because I'm pretty sure these kids don't want to spend all day here. Um, 
I know this has been kind of a heavy few days, especially if you've got little kids in school. That was uh, just devastating to hear everything that was going on there. There's this tendency to feel like, where's the hope? And uh, ironically, my wife and I have been watching this TV series, you know, like six or eight episode thing, and it has this mother and a daughter in it. And we got to the end of it last night, and I was like, was this just horrible acting or a horrible script or what? And we kind of went to bed at that. And I woke up this morning, and I was thinking about it, and I was realizing that through this entire series, there's one hopeless point after another hopeless point. And, there's, and you'd think, oh, here's, here's where we're going to get some hope. And there isn't. It's just one tragedy after another after another. And they end up at the end of the series standing on the beach at the ocean, and the waves are crashing in. They say some nice things and then walk down the beach. And I realized this morning, it's because there's no hope. The entire show was filled with hopelessness. And when I think about that, about communion, that's why we do communion. Because it's what gives us hope. Um, We think about all the injustice that happened last week. And the scripture I'm going to read for communion ends with, until he comes. And I think we need to remember, as we lament what happened... And we lament what Jesus went through. We also need to rejoice that that set the wheels in motion for his return. And at his return, there is nothing but justice. There's no more injustice. There's no more of this stuff we deal with all the time. So I want to challenge you as we take communion. We are open communion here. Um, If you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to join us with communion. There's tables around the gym. Um, it's just another form of worship that we do. But try to mix the lament with the rejoicing that Jesus died for your sins, that he is coming again someday. So if you would stand with me, I'm going to read scripture from 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we know there's pain There's suffering, but we know you are the only true hope. And Father, I pray that as we do this act of communion, this remembrance of you, that in our heart, our soul, we would lament what you went through, but we would rejoice in the love that you have shown us through this act, and that we would anticipate the day that you come. In Jesus' name, amen.